This is Education Insight. I'm Lacey Kendall. This past month, the Toward a Shared Vision Education Summit was held in Riverside, bringing together the highest level of inland education, economic, and nonprofit leaders. For two days, discussions large and small focused on the collective impact that can be achieved here finding solutions and smarter pathways for student success in school and in college, even after. To be transparent, one of the sponsors was Growing Inland Achievement, who sponsored this program. Speakers ranged from great national thinkers to disadvantaged students who shared what has helped them make it to graduation and what didn't. Today on Education Insight, we're bringing you noteworthy moments and speakers from that event. And later, the keynote address of Victor Rios, who evolved from Oakland gang member to becoming Dr. Victor Rios, Senior Advisor and Vice Chancellor for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at UC Santa Barbara. He says a high school teacher created that path. What she said to him is coming up. The event opened with words from the Chancellor of the San Bernardino Community College District, Diana Z. Rodriguez. It is so wonderful to see you all here today. As introduced, I, my name is Diana Rodriguez, and I'm the Chancellor of the San Bernardino Community College District. You know, raise your hands. If you've ever taken a class at San Bernardino Valley College, Crafton Hills College, or have tuned into KVCR's programming, look at that. It, it is clear that I am in good, good company here. Now, before we dive into the heart of our summit today, I want to share with you an inspiring story. It was inspirational to me that embodies the unwavering spirit of our students right here in the Inland Empire. It's a story of hope, resilience, and an incredible journey that some of our students undertake. So picture this. Picture this if you can. Imagine being just 10 years old. 10 years old and finding yourself abandoned by your father in a foreign country. This is the real-life story of one of our incredible students. Her name is Eunice. And I first met Eunice at a luncheon when she was telling her story, and it just really touched my heart. And whenever I have the opportunity, I like to share her story. You know, she faced the undaunting reality of moving from the vibrant culture of Nigeria the only place she's ever known in her young 10 years, to experience the foster homes in Florida and the foster care system in that state. You know, overcoming challenges that most of us can't even fathom what she experienced. But what sets Eunice apart, really, is she didn't let those struggles define her, right? To talk with her, she is the one of the most liveliest students that you will have ever met. So if you fast forward from when she was 10 years old to June 2022, fate bought her to the San Bernardino Community College District, more specifically to San Bernardino Valley College, 
with just a little bit more than hope in her heart, she reached out to us. She reached out to us, and in the true spirit of who we are, we welcomed her into our district, much like you would have at many of your institutions. While she was in Nigeria, she knew that education was important. She got on, she got on the internet, and, or excuse me, while she was in Florida, she got online and was taking a look and seeing what, what opportunities were out there, and something brought her to our website. She got on the phone, she talked with some of the folks at our institution and got inspired, got inspired, got on a plane and came to California, landed in Ontario. Now, minded, no one at the institution knew she was doing this. She called and she said, I'm at the airport. I don't know what to do. I've only got a few dollars in my pocket. I really don't know what to do. And they tell me I cannot stay the night here in the airport. So our team, again, doing what, doing what they do, and again, what most of your institutions, if not all of your institutions, would do, we started thinking quick. We got folks, we got folks to go out there to pick her up, bring her into our campus, and we immediately got to work on how we're going to help this student. Now granted, she wasn't one of our students yet, by the end of the day, she was one of our students. We provided her with rapid housing, an emergency scholarship, and just really wrapped our arms around her for unwavering support to, to be sure that she would be successful. And so here's the more incredible part of the story. This past May, Eunice walked proudly across the graduation stage. She graduated with not only one, but two associate's degrees in criminal justice and in behavioral and social sciences. She did not give up, and she is an incredible, incredible young lady. And now, she's taking her dreams to UCR, to UC Riverside, just right up the street here, with aspirations of attending law school. And I have no doubt that she's going to meet that dream. And in becoming an attorney, she said she wants to protect the most vulnerable amongst us. And I thought when she intentionally chose that word, protect the most vulnerable around us, not help, not assist, anything like that, but to protect folks, that is powerful. That is powerful. I look forward to hearing in a couple of years when she has graduated from UCR and has graduated from law school. You know, her incredible journey serves as a powerful, powerful reminder to just the extraordinary tenacity of our students and the crucial role that each of us play when we are supporting our students and supporting their dreams. I know that you all deeply, deeply care about the community's well-being. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here today. And you firmly believe, just like I do, that education is the key to success, right? the key of lifting our students and the key to lifting our communities. Each one of you here is a champion in your own way for education. So thank you for everything you do. Let's give yourselves a round of applause. My goodness, you all do some incredible, incredible work. You know, whether you're in the classroom with students, a community partner or an advocate. This summit over these next few days is for you. This summit is all about coming together and learning from each other, making connections, 
working together to improve education and job opportunities for our communities. Our goal is really simple, to do better for our students and to make sure that everyone has a fair chance at education, that everyone has that fair chance, and in the end, boost our local economy. I was reading some information not too long ago. Research shows that an impressive 85%, that's 85% of potential students and parents in the Inland Empire understand the value of an education. They understand the value of a college degree. But it didn't stop there. Going to college or getting a further education doesn't just help people find jobs. That's just the first step. It also means that they can earn more, own homes, stay healthier, and start their own businesses, rely less on government assistance, and give back to the communities by voting and volunteering. I am truly honored to be a part of this incredible group of people who work hard every day, all of you who work hard every day to create a brighter future for our students right here in the Inland Empire. Our region is vast. It is so huge, but we understand the importance of working together to making sure that everyone has that opportunity and a chance at a good education and good careers, again, right here in our beautiful area. So what can you expect from this summit? What can you expect over the next couple of days? We have a lineup of interesting workshops that will focus on helping students succeed in every aspect of their education. We'll talk about advising, equity, math courses, you know, getting students ready for college and careers, and also helping them to pay for their education, just to name a few topics. In closing, I want to stress that this summit isn't just about listening to talks and going to workshops. That's a part of it. But much more than that, it's a chance for all of us to meet, to work together, and to really inspire each other. So let's step out of our usual groups, meet some different people, learn about different areas of study, and come up with new ideas that will truly help our organizations. And remember, we can achieve more when we grow together. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me today. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Education Insight. This week, bringing you the highlights of the Toward a Shared Vision Education Summit in Riverside. In a panel before guests, Inland Empire students shared hardships that they feel policymakers need to be aware of. So I would like to add to that. I think the big factor most of us can relate to and most students can relate to is mental health. Teachers are usually so focused in just trying to get you to learn the material of the classroom. And most teachers don't ask how, how your day is going, if, if you're fine, if it like talk to you, maybe a small talk just to see how you're doing. I think that, that would benefit most students and actually decrease depression among the students because attending high school is like really a lot of pressure, especially if you're taking AP classes like Jasmine said, if, especially if you come from a certain background. So 
A lot of students struggle with mental health. I would say getting resources to help them out would be like a really good help. More from the recent Toward a Shared Vision Education Summit in Riverside in just a moment. This is Education Insight. back with more Education Insight. This week, sharing the highlights of the Toward a Shared Vision Education Summit in Riverside, where educators, economists, and policymakers all gathered to learn how this region can work more collectively to help students succeed in greater numbers. Max Espinosa is a former senior advisor to the California Student Aid Commission also to Los Angeles mayors Antonio Villaragosa and Karen Bass. And he now serves as senior program officer for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where his specialty is education reform that closes equity gaps. Good morning, everybody. My family came to the United States because they wanted um, myself and my sister to have opportunities that they weren't able to have my parents, right? And that included a quality education and the possibility, maybe, to actually go to college. And so as a first-generation immigrant from San Diego, much like a large part of the population in the Inland Empire, the work you are doing is so deeply personal. Right? I went to college in the 90s at the height of the anti-immigrant fervor that was sweeping the, the state and the country at that time. And I remember orientation at UCLA. And they told us, uh, you know, this is my first time visiting as an accepted student. I decided I'm going to go. Uh, turn to your left, turn to your right. How many remember this? <laughs> uh, is it one or both of you? <laughs> These two people aren't going to make it. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that was the introduction to the university, right? Um, super scary and as a first generation student you can imagine the terror that I felt of failing and disappointing my family right? Um, that made personal sacrifices for us to have this opportunity let alone failing policymakers. I wasn't thinking about that but you know who had invested right in people like myself and practitioner leaders being able to go uh, with financial aid, et cetera. So I, I mention that because a lot has changed, but in some ways a lot has not fully changed, right? And the work of, of this organization is really to see us create a, a different type of system, right? A different type of working with students. Now, I was able to get through UCLA. It took me six years. Um, one of those was serving as the UC student regent, so I don't regret staying that extra year. Um, but I, I would lie to you if I didn't say that it was not turbulent as well in terms of getting through. Uh, getting in was just part of the battle. The Getting through was the other part. And 
you know, parents' divorce, family illness, the whole thing, right? The things that our students deal with. And if it wasn't for the various people and communities along the way, including folks like yourselves, educators committed, you know, to uh, young people at that time, I was young, uh, you know, having their dreams realized to get across the finish line, um, I would not have made it. And so the work that you do is so deeply, deeply personal to me on so many levels. And I know that, um, that some of you may be wondering, how many of you know what an intermediary for scale is? <laughs> well, there's a few. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'm going to briefly mention, talk about that. But um, so one of the things I was asked to reference is why, why is the Gates Foundation interested in the Inland Empire? Why, why have we been uh, paying attention here? And I think the chancellor um, did such a good job of laying that out. I don't think I need to get into all the details of that. But I think I would add that um, the, the critical mass of all these incredible people, including yourselves, who are committed to change, to create something better, right, for, for this, this region and for the state, I think is a huge, huge part of why not only the Gates Foundation, but others, College Futures, Irvine, et cetera, are looking to the Inland Empire as a place of possibility. The governor himself has pointed out the opportunities here and has made significant commitments and investment. But as you know, and I don't have to preach to you, but the numbers are also really uh, stark, right? 13%, just using the Latino number, 13 out of 55% population Latino. It's a huge problem. I mean, that number in itself, uh, to me, just is, is, a, is a, you know, a state of emergency, right, as an educator. And so that is just one example. Um, the diversity of this region... Uh, with African-Americans, Latinos, as well as others that are concentrated in this region, also give us an opportunity here for you and us supporting you in showing what a future multiracial democracy can look like in action locally, regionally, in real, real time. And so this is a really exciting time, I think, where all eyes are on the IE because those numbers I mentioned are also opportunities, right? Like, there is so much room to make things happen here. And uh, collectively, uh, we hope we can do that. The intermediaries for scale, I won't say much about that. Um, we're really fortunate. Our, our leader who uh, leads that portfolio work uh, at the Gates Foundation is here, Gabriela Torres. I you can wave. Some of you, most of you know her. Um, that's right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, and Gabriella is also, you know, I, I get, I get, I'm up here, so I get to say what I want, right? Uh, she's, she's also one of the few people of color who are in leadership at the Gates Foundation. I think that's a really important thing to call out when, when we see it. And so um, it's important that uh, she's there and that she's at the table and bringing her experience, not dissimilar from my own and many of you, to the table uh, in these conversations about where we invest and how we invest. But really briefly, we, we have six intermediaries for scale. Um, uh, ASCU, uh, Association, American Association of State Colleges and University, American Indian Higher Education Consortium, uh, Complete College America, Excelencia, 
in education and UNCF. And it's really interesting. If you look at all those organizations, there's a couple of things that stand out is the other ones are all national. Um, they're all uh, have national reach. Uh, GIA is actually the only one uh, that um, is focused in a, in a very specific place and is place-based um, in nature. Uh, these organizations were selected because they demonstrated a commitment and experience in supporting institutions as they reduce college success disparities by race and income, promoting continuous improvement and learning through the use of data, and identifying, implementing, and evaluating significant um, institutional change uh, in policy and practice. Uh, all the intermediaries are charged with increasing awareness of successful and promising transformation strategies among campus institutional leaders and communities, informing key campus-level decisions about change options and strategies, um, and supporting decision-makers, supporting transformation by providing guidance and resources for adopting, implementing, evaluating, and sustaining changes in policy and practice building connections across colleges and universities and supporting organizations, other organizations, non-institutional, to accelerate and streamline uh, learning and shared promising practices. So I mention all this because, you know, this is a hope, right? Um, We know that this work is hard, and it's going to have to be done in community, right? It's going to have to be done uh, together, and it's going to need to include breaking down and reevaluating old ways of doing things and silos. And the opportunity right now with the governor's focus on regions, uh, the K-16 collaboratives, the SURF funds, you know, the California Economic Resiliency Funds, all of these opportunities at this moment, I think, give you an opportunity to really lean into a, a, a time when folks are actually wanting to see what is possible here. And so with that, I would just end by saying that we are really proud to just be a very small part of this effort. You, you are the ones that are doing the work. Um, I know I speak for my colleagues that we, we learn so much from you. And um, this is really an opportunity for all of us to, to not just do some really amazing things, but to learn and to hopefully reimagine what our educational systems look like and how they serve students. You all know the African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's, that's really what we're, we're trying to live out here. So thank you all so much. You're listening to Education Insight. Today with highlights from the recent Toward a Shared Vision Education Summit in Riverside. Victor Rios grew up in Oakland. By middle school, was already in a gang. By high school, in trouble. Years ago, the PBS program Frontline was reporting on his school when a fight broke out near the cameras and Victor was seen being hauled off, kicking and yelling. As his incident went national, a teacher there offered help, and he accepted the offer. Today, he's the acclaimed Dr. Victor Rios, the Vice Chancellor for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at UC Santa Barbara. He's a best-selling author, and his TED Talk, YouTube videos, and television appearances have been watched close to a million times. Dr. Rios opened his discussion at the Riverside Summit with a bite 
from the PBS NewsHour. My name is Victor Rios. In 1994, this was me. I was introduced to the nation in a frontline documentary. I was a gang member, a juvenile delinquent, and a high school dropout. I feel like I've lived two lifetimes. One was 20 years of being on the streets, being in, uh, uh, in poverty, uh, feeling helpless and fatalistic. And if you reflect on the populations that are far from opportunity in the Inland Empire, you might come to terms with the idea that because life has been so tough on them that um, maybe for some of them they're not seeing that opportunity and that maybe for some of them there's some fatalism. But also systemically, right, uh, people might be feeling the way they're feeling, but systemically then it, it uh, becomes embedded in us uh, within the system that like, oh look, they're feeling like there's no hope, so why even try with them? And that's the part I want to change because instead of being that way with people, we have to be uh, beacons of hope, right, when, when there is no hope there. So in this work, in this sort of approach, uh, one of the sort of ideas that I've been practicing for over 20 years now is thinking of the way we even think about the people we serve and, we, and that we have to start there. So the theme for the rest of the conversation is really rethinking sort of the way that we think about, talk about, and serve. And even what does it mean to serve? You know, maybe rephrasing that, that word. So I'll, I'll start a little bit about my own journey. When I'm a little kid, uh, my mom's a single mom. I didn't have a father. He, he abandoned us before I was even born. So my mom, like, she didn't have adequate childcare, so she'd leave my brother. He was seven and I was three. But she would lock the door from the outside. And she'd go to work 10 hours a day. And the seven-year-old was, like, in charge of the three-year-old, and he was trying to make sure I was entertained, I was fed, and that I didn't fall off of that second story window. We lived above a liquor store at the time with a big old window that I just poked my head out of. And somehow this seven-year-old managed to keep me safe to the point that when I was little, I thought this seven-year-old was an adult. Like, I thought he was my parental figure. So then when I got older, I asked him, uh, hey, bro, uh, what was it like having to raise me? He's like, oh, you, you were a really annoying kid to raise. That's what he remembers. But the fact that this child, this seven-year-old child, didn't get to grow up, or rephrase that, didn't get to live a childhood of growing up because he was so busy having to raise his little sibling. And think about the ways in which children in the Inland Empire have to not just fend for themselves, but fend for their little siblings. And the ways in which we could tap into that because then we make them role models for their little ones and educators for their little ones. But we have to be there to provide resources and empower them to do so. So I'm navigating this educational journey. I actually liked school uh, at, at little stages in life. I really liked school, first, second grade, third grade. I was a nerd reading Greek mythology. And then third grade hits, and a teacher was sitting in the front of class, and she was like yelling at me because uh, I wouldn't read this word on the board. And uh, I wouldn't read this word on the board because uh, she thought I was giving her attitude, like I was too cool for school. But I needed glasses, and I was like squinting. But I guess when I squint, it looks like I'm looking at you like, like I want to fight you or something. And she, she called me a wannabe, like a wannabe gangster, right? She's like, stop being a wannabe. Go to the principal. So she thought I was trying to like be hard around my, my homies, but I was just in need of glasses. So she kicks me out of class. 
And then she said to the principal, and the principal starts yelling at me. And then he wanted me to look at him in the eyes when he was talking to me. He was scolding me. And then I was like, man, I'm not looking at this guy in the eyes. And, um, and the reason is because my mom had taught me, you don't look at authority figures in the eyes. It's like a sign of disrespect, at least in my household. But this guy wanted to teach me a lesson. He was like, hey, man, like, in America, you got to look at people in the eyes and, like, you know, shake their hand to close that business transaction. But in my world, I wasn't taught that way. So he was trying, but, but he just didn't know how to teach children like me. And let's, let's take into inventory, into account, how many of our educators in the institutions that we lead don't know how to teach. Let's just put it out there. How, what percentage don't know how to teach? I'll, I'll admit, UC Santa Barbara, I was just dealing with this this week. I get kids from Inland Empire, from Paris, California, Mobile. I get kids from Riverside. I get kids from Northern California, from the hood, from Oakland. I get kids from, you get it, South LA, Koreatown, East LA, freshmen, show up. Dr. Rios, I won't be a doctor for the hood. That's what's up. Let me know what you need. They come back a year later. They're in my sociology class. Hey, what you doing here, man? I thought you were gonna be a doctor for the hood. Not a sociologist. Dr. Rios, I got weeded out. Kids come in, freshman kids, get told, welcome to bio, welcome to chemistry. Half of you will be weeded out. Guess who gets weeded out? First generation children of color. Children, young people of color. So let's take inventory from the top down or bottom up, from K to 20. How many, what percentage of our educators don't know how to connect with our young people that we serve? That's where we got to start. And if you're not willing to lead that conversation, then you shouldn't be in leadership. Straight up. That's a scary conversation to lead. But you got to do it. You got to be brave. And not just, talk, oh, I do equity. I lead in equity. Have you had that conversation? Trust me, when you have that conversation, some of your uh, educators will be vulnerable and be like, yeah, I don't, know how to, I, don't know how, I don't know how to serve the kids you got me serving right now. Can you help me? And some of them will be like this. And that's okay because this is a culture change approach. So if you could provide resources for your educators to learn how to serve our populations better, then the ones that are resistant to it will just pick up on it. It's like you just have to go with the flow of what the rest of the crowd is doing. All right, so anyway, that remember third grade? I get kicked out of school that one day by the principal. I got suspended, and then he calls my mom. And my mom used to work at this restaurant. I don't know if y'all got them around here. It's called Sizzler. <laughs> what y'all know about Sizzler, Texas cheese toast? Hey, my mom, you know what her job was? To clean that salad bar? So she had a hard job, and then at noon that day, so when I got in trouble, so then... She had to pick me up. Her boss, of course, was mad, told her he was gonna fire her. So my mom got to school, was angry at me, got told I was a bad kid, got sent home, and then I got home and I got a, and I got a beating with an extension cord that day. So I want you to think about how three adults had failed me that day. The teacher, the principal, and my mother. And then I want you to think about how all the, 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 the young people and the students that you serve have been failed systematically since childhood by all these systems, including family. Sometimes, you know, we just blame the family. Oh, it's their parents, it's their family. But if we think about it, 
you know, our families just are a product of our society. And if we're not teaching them to, to raise our children better, then how can we expect them to know better? So when our families don't know better, it's our job to teach them better. You'd be surprised. I do some basic parenting classes with, with parents. And then I do the same strategies with teachers. You'd be surprised how teachers are like, yeah, I never used that strategy. So when people don't know better in our system, it's our job to teach them better, even the basics. So my whole thing, 20 years of being this kind of systems change person is like, oh, I got to give people simple pragmatic strategies in order for this change to happen. And this is an epiphany I just had in the last couple of years. And then I published books around just very practical strategies. More of Dr. Victor Rios coming up in just a moment. You're listening to Education Insight. This is Education Insight. Before the break, we introduced you to Dr. Victor Rios, a former gang member and dropout who turned it around with the help of a teacher. He spoke to local educators about how to help hard-to-reach students at the recent Education Summit in Riverside. And we continue now with his discussion. All right, so so third grade is the first time in my life as a little kid, it's like, man, I hate school. I hate teachers. I hate principals. And then my teacher was like, oh, you're trying to be hard? You're trying to be a gangster? All right. I'm going to kick you out of class. Guess what I became? This kid that was trying to be hard, trying to be a gangster. And then um, uh, by eighth grade, I had gone through a lot already, including some grown man pulling a gun to my head when I was eight, um, seeing a lot of violence. And then when I was uh, uh, in eighth grade, uh, we were in this very dilapidated living situation. Uh, My little cousin, he was two months old. He's sleeping in his crib. He was my little neighbor. His mom was asleep, lights were out, and we had big rats. Them rats crawled on his crib, and they began to chew his face up. Little baby, infant, attracted to the uh, infant milk. They chewed his gums, cheeks, lips. Luckily, he survived, he made it through. But by this time, I'm like, man, I'm done with school. Like, it's not paying my bills. So I end up dropping out of school, going to push lawnmowers, making a dollar an hour. That wasn't paying anything, so then I ended up on the streets hustling, and you name it, I was doing a lot of bad stuff, but the one thing that I kept getting arrested for was uh, stealing cars. I would steal cars, sell the parts. I end up in juvie one day. The first time, 14 years old, I get to juvie, and the guy, the, guy, the guard, he's like, we're gonna teach you a lesson. You know, like, you ever heard of Scared Straight? Some of you are like, yeah, I practice Scared Straight. Some of you are, no, but go look it up. Scared Straight, he was trying to do Scared Straight on me, he's like, I'm going to have someone beat you up. I'm like, I don't care. Because, you know, when you're little like that, you think you, you don't think you're little, right? I was a chihuahua. I thought it was a pit bull, right? And I'm like, I don't care. So he throws me in a cell with a 17-year-old. And the 17-year-old is like, big dude. And I was like, man, I'm about to get beat up. But I got to be tough, right? So I'm in the corner like this, just fist balled up, ready to fight him. But also knowing I'm going to get beat up. And then we're in a little cell. And I just see, like, his eyes kind of there in the backdrop and he's like hey man what you in here for i'm like man uh i uh i stole a car man he's like what kind of car 
I'm like, man, I stole this old Toyota, man. At this moment, I want to take a break and apologize to anyone in the room if your Toyota or Honda was stolen in the 1990s. On behalf of my generation, I want to apologize to you. They invented the club because of my generation. You know the club, that red thing that goes on steering wheels? Yeah. So Lisa says, what you in here for? I'm like, man, I stole this car. And he's like, man, you stupid. And I was like, yeah, I know. And right then, I thought he was going to teach me my lesson and beat me up. And then he goes, you should be stealing high-performance American vehicles, man, like Buick Grand Nationals, uh, Camaro Z28s, IROCs. You know what I mean? And I was like, yeah, man, I don't know how to steal those. He proceeds to say, don't worry. I will teach you. So the system did teach me a lesson, folks. How many times you talk to your educators across systems or your staff? I'm talking about law enforcement, too. I'm talking about probation across systems. I'm talking to even people that work in the nonprofit sector, and they want to do some old school, tough love discipline on people that they're serving. That doesn't work. You're just sending people up for failures when you do that. We need a new approach for supporting and guiding folks when they get themselves in trouble. And some of you are pioneers at these new approaches. I want to acknowledge that restorative justice, restorative practices, transformative justice, transformative practices. And so uh, I leave Juby. I went to go steal an IROC Z28. And, uh, but, you know, that wouldn't have been a good career for me because I kept getting caught, and I ended up with three felonies, and I was just fatalistic. I was going to die before my 18th birthday or, or end up in prison, and I was ready for it. That was my mindset. I want you to know this because there's populations out there right now that we're supposed to be supporting, and they're probably feeling that way. Why should I take your program or your support when I don't even know if I'm going to make it to tomorrow? I've been sleeping under this underpass. You know, or my parents abandoned me. Like, why, why would I take your program? And then sometimes your staff are like, see, they don't want to be helped. Why, why, why do we even waste our time, right? That's the logic. That there's going to be moments where folks are fatalistic, but that doesn't mean that it lasts forever. It's never forever just for now. And you all remember some of you grew up in adversity. You know, you can, you can use that adversity, uh, but you need the support, you need the resources, and you need people believing in you. So changing that mindset and the culture and the people we supervise to truly believe that the, whoever they're looking at, I'm going to show you some pictures in a minute, whoever you're looking at, you have the self-efficacy to believe they're going to make it. You know what the number one predictor for K-12 teachers to report high job satisfaction? And we know <laughs> it's pretty low right now. We know that, right? But you know what the number one predictor of an educator reporting that they have high job satisfaction, high self-efficacy. If a teacher feels, this is my classroom right here, every single one of you in here are going to receive and take away a positive message today, and my message to you will be transformative. That's high self-efficacy. If a teacher walks in and is like, whoa, that table over there, <laughs> can't, can't reach them, can't teach them, they're misbehaving. That drops their self-efficacy, and it drops all the other indicators, too. We have to find creative ways 
to change the culture so that our people within the systems we supervise end up believing that the work they're doing is always impactful. It's always positive. It's always going to be transformative. All right, so I'm out of juvie that third and last time. I'm on the streets. I'm hanging out with my homeboy who I've grown up with since we were little. We go to the other side of town. We get in a fight with some guys we didn't get along with. And uh, they pulled out a gun. They shot at us. And my best friend passed away. And it's this moment in my life uh, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to turn to. I had no one. Not my mom. She was too busy surviving. I had no one. My brother was gone. He was already living on his own. Um, so I went to one place, one person that told me she would be there for me. I went to school to look for my teacher. Miss Russ. Hey, Miss Russ was the kind of teacher that was always in your business. I'm not gonna lie, she was annoying. That's the other factor, right, the mindset. We can't take people's mindsets as a given. In other words, like, she could have been like, this kid's cussed me out, ninth grade and 10th grade. He hates me, I'm not gonna work with him anymore. But instead, she would always be like, Victor, you're not ready, but when you're ready, I'll be here for you. She had this very soothing way of being like, oh, you're not gonna disrespect me. But when you're ready, I'll be here. So this teacher, you know, like I went back to school, I was hurting, my best friend had just passed away, she sees me walking down the hallway, she says, Victor, are you okay? I heard what happened, I'm trying to be this tough guy. And I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. She taps me on my shoulder and right within this lady taps me on my shoulder, all my fear, all my pain began to grow. And like a little kid, man, I started to cry in front of the whole school. And in that moment, I just wanted to wither away into the gutter with my tears and never come back. And you know what this teacher did? <laughs> she opened her arms, she gave me a hug, she said, Victor, I'm here for you. If you're ready to change your life around, I'll be here for you, but you have to do the work. I gotta say that in that moment, my teacher embraced me. I felt like everything was gonna be okay. I felt like regardless of where I was, this criminal, in poverty, you, you name every stereotype, right, that things were gonna be okay. And even though she violated district code 325.72, thou shall never hug a child, it made an impact in my life. It wasn't a creepy hug, okay? <laughs> no, it's important to convince systems to, to th rethink the way we have policy set up. And also it's important for us to sometimes not follow the policy. Be a rebel, okay, but just don't get fired. And in that moment, I felt like, man, I, I, I think I could do it. I think I could do it. And little by little, I started to like, get myself together. I went to zero period at 7 in the morning to catch up on my credits. I went to lunchtime extra credit. I'm going through this journey of catching up, and it's night school at the community college that helps me catch up with my credits. I'm getting ready to graduate high school. Man, I'm on top of the world. Mom has a third grade education. I got a high school diploma. And then she's like, Miss Russ, Victor, I'm so proud of you. I knew you could do it. She's like, now it's time to go to college. <laughs> college me? Man, what is this teacher smoking thinking? I'm going to college. Man, I'm going to be a mechanic, work on old school rides, make $15 an hour, and live a happy life. And then she pulls out that 10-year planning, reality check sheet, itemized budget. You know what I'm talking about? You've used this before? But I wanted, I wanted to have these things in life, but I didn't know how to get them. And she taught me how. She's like, you got to go to college to do that. 
And I was like, oh, man. She came up with a solid number. At the time, I think it was in the 50,000 range. That's how much you got to make a year. And I thought, 50,000? Whoa, that's like, I'll never make that kind of money. She's like, if you go to college, you will. So that lady helped me think. She helped me think in a very positive way. Another thing, too, though, is she connected me with culturally responsive uh, mentors. So you notice a little, little difference in our skin tone, don't you? I didn't have to say, hey, you, you know, you're white. Like, you can't mentor me. I didn't have to say that. You know what she did? She went to the local university, and I'm from up north. I'm from Oakland, California. So she went to UC Berkeley, and she walked around campus looking for mentors that looked like me. And she found this guy. He's from East L.A., but it was a Berkeley student at the time, Martin Flores. And then <laughs> she would tell him, hey, will you come mentor my kids? They were like, who is this lady? But they, they wanted to help local community kids, so they show up. And he'd be like, hey, Victor, proud people like us, we can go to college too. And he would hype me up, like, yeah, I'm going to represent for my community, for my culture, for my people. He gave me a sense of pride and also a role model, like, so I could see myself in college. And it was people like this that changed this image of myself. If you notice here, that's me with the homies throwing up a gang sign. This is a group of boys from my first book on the first systematic study on the school to prison pipeline. And I followed these boys. One of them has a liquor bottle in his hand. He's 14. It's a school day. You know what society thinks. We don't see them as promise. <laughs> we, see, we don't see them as assets. We see them as threats. We have to flip that, right? Some of you are using that at promise language, and I appreciate that when I roll in because it took 20 years to get there. But what you label someone determines how you will treat them. Too many times I see wonderful people being like, oh, Pobrecitos, poor people, you know, look at them. Let's just provide them a meal and just not give them a hard time, right? And it's like, no, give them a meal, break bread with them and say, hey, you know what? I know you're there. I expect you to be here tomorrow. Really, Dr. Rios, these kinds of people can? Yeah, these kinds of people can get there on their own. You just have to project for them. So don't pity, project. So I call it mentor projected self-actualization, educator projected self-actualization. And what this is, is like you project for folks that you're working with and provide them the appropriate resources to do so to get to a better, brighter future. So when my teacher met me, the best, the best you could see me thinking I was was this homeboy over here, right? But she saw me as someone that didn't exist for 20 years. And she once told me as I'm getting ready to go off to college, because. I got lucky. I got admitted to Cal State. But around that time, this lady was like, one day you'll meet president. I'm like, that's loca, man, lady, you crazy. I'm a homeboy, like, for life. Like, I ain't meeting no presidents. And then one day, 20 years later, I get invited to the White House to advise the Obama administration on gun violence and policing in America. Uh, they invited us to uh, the people that went, you know, the experts. Uh, they invited us to a White House gathering on the White House lawn congressional picnic, and it was all the Congress people sitting like this, and then some families, a couple dignitaries. I don't know about where you come from, but where I come from, you give a person a ticket for one person, I'm bringing my whole family. <laughs> so I brought my daughter, my other daughter, my son, my wife, and then uh, President Obama comes out, my boy throws up a little peace sign there, surreal. President Obama comes and shakes everyone's hand, shakes my hand, I have my son right here in my arm, and he looks at my son, he goes, he raises his hand up like this, he goes, give me five, don't leave me hanging. And in that moment, that they're high-fiving each other, guess who I'm thinking about? 
Miss Russ. Let me ask you a question. Raise your hand. Can a teacher, can an educator, can a mentor predict the future? All right. Who disagrees with that? Raise your hand. Yeah. Why? You can grow a future. Don't predict. That's the problem with our society. We're so busy predicting people's futures. They're not going to make it. They're, not gonna, they're on the low track. They're not going to make it. That's prediction. You can't predict the future, but you can project the future. And projection is creating these visualizations, very clear visualizations, combined with resources to really help people get to where we want them to go. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate your time. Take care. Special thanks to the PBS NewsHour and their feature story on Dr. Victor Rios. If you'd like to hear more of that story, look for One Man's Journey from Gang Member to Academia. It's on YouTube. And that is our program for today. The staff at Education Insight all wish you the happiest of holidays, and we look forward to another year of sharing the stories of inland Southern California education with you in 2024. I'm Lacey Kendall for Education Insight. Thanks for joining us. Education Insight is produced in partnership with KVCR San Bernardino. Our executive producer is Jacob Poor, and our production engineer is Tyler Vizi. Alyssa Silva is our production assistant, and Lacey Kendall is your host. Support is provided by Growing Inland Achievement, working together for inland education and economic success. And by Colleague Futures Foundation. Do you have questions or suggestions for the future topics we should be covering? Write to us at educationinsight.org. Join us again next time for Education Insight. <laughs>